This is the Chronically Fit Show. On this podcast, we speak to people achieving incredible sporting goals despite a chronic health condition. My name's David, and I have autoimmune hepatitis. I'm joined by health and fitness experts to better understand how physical activity can help manage chronic conditions like mine. Through the conversations I'm having with our guests, I'm better understanding how to approach my own health condition. So I hope you enjoy not just this show, but journey. Today we're talking to Danielle. Danielle is a university student or college student, of course, as she's American based in Long Island, so I should use the right terminology, but she's a student nonetheless who's also an elite golfer and happens to suffer from type 1 diabetes. And it's something that she discovered in her late teens. So this is all about the environment and support structure around her and how she's coped with not only the disease on a day-to-day basis, but also when she's competing and making sure that other people understand the different routines that she has to take and how she copes with them. At the end of the conversation, of course, I'm going to be joined by both Natalie and Marla to pick over some of the points and see what resonated with our in-house fitness and health experts. So on today's episode, I'm talking to Danielle Bambola, uh, who overcame a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes in her freshman year in 2016 to go on to become one of her nation's most promising uh, and top golfers. Uh, Right, make sure I get this right, Danielle, but in this year alone, you were the WGCA Division III second team All-American and first team All-Eastern Region selection. You recorded... Four tournament first place finishes, one second place finish showing in five appearances across the fall season. Um, I think you're captain. You uh, scored a 75 or better seven times, was in the 70s in all but one round, broke your own school record for a two-day score and tied your own school single round record. So before coronavirus struck, you're having a pretty good year, right? I was having a very good year. (laughs) Really, it was a crazy year. Um, at my school in the spring, we have award ceremonies at the end of the year and we didn't have any of them, but we had others. And I was fortunately selected as my school's athlete of the year as well, which was out of this world. And, um, the Kim, Kim Moore Spirit Award Award was, in my opinion, that was like the best of them all because, um, just the fact that people, random people selectively like chose me because of my spirit and my positive attitude and just strength and fortitude with my team, without my team, whatever the case may be, just for them to pick me out of everyone in the world, in the nation was just out of this world for me. I think that was the craziest of them all, but that is all true, and it was a really good year. And yet, as we mentioned there, just four years ago, you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and you spent two days in a coma. So mm. at that point, having the year that you've just had must have seemed quite a distant thing. Yeah, I mean, it feels like I've had it forever because of the up and downs and the fight against the things I put in my body every day or don't put in my body and how it affects me. And I just feel like what I've done since that first diagnosis has been really crazy compared to that day a few years ago. 
So you mentioned there from that point of that first diagnosis, when did you, either you suspect that something wasn't quite right or when did doctors begin to say to you, there's something a little bit off? So I had mono. So I had mono for a long time and then I went back to school, didn't have the like giving out the symptoms or anything, um, Mm -hmm. but I just still had, I still felt horrible. And then one week went by and then it felt like I got all the symptoms again. Like one good week happened and then I felt like I was back to square one. And so at that point, I wasn't consulting to any any doctors. I was just up at school and I was like, well, you know what? Maybe it's just another relapse of it because I've heard that you can get it twice. So then I... I'm sorry, to, to jump in, mono is mononucleosis, right? Yeah. For anyone that's not familiar. Yeah. When I first got diagnosed with mono, they said at the physician I go to, it's one of the worst they've seen. And so it was really hard to come back from and then to get it again in my head I was just like well I knew what to do with the first time so I'm just going to keep doing my same routine that I've done and hopefully I'll just get better after a month or two and then a month and a half went by and I was just getting worse and worse and it finally came down to I called my hat my parents who were here on Long Island and I was up at school and I was like you guys need to come get me because I have no I don't know what else to do I lost 17 pounds in two weeks. I wasn't eating. I was only drinking water and orange juice and milk. And um, that night, it was just weird, the sequence of events that happened that night. I went, um, I tried to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I couldn't move um, from my dorm room. And I just sat down on the floor and that was it. I knocked out for like five hours unconscious and then I was in a coma. So you could say the after that good week happened, that first time was when I started feeling bad again, and that's when things were off. So I'd say around the beginning of February, I started feeling horrible again. Was it a shock or even possibly a relief to then get a diagnosis? And I, I say that really carefully, but you you obviously were suffering from mono. You thought you were going to, or you hoped you were going to get better. Yeah. You weren't getting better. Mm-mm. And then being told, actually, you've got type 1 diabetes. It was it was huge because no one on either side of my family has diabetes. It's never been genetically in our family for ages. It's never been only type 2, and that's from a bad diet and from growing older. Yeah, And so it was just crazy because my mom has an autoimmune disease, which is celiac disease. She can't have mm. weed. And they say sometimes with families who have autoimmune, like even any type of autoimmune disease in their family, they can get another one within that generation. Or if that person has a child, maybe they'll get an autoimmune disease, thinking it might be celiac disease, but there's just a shock that it was type 1 because usually you're born with that or you get it at the age of 12 and I got it a little later. But when I say relief, and as I said, I say that very tentatively, you then at least it can make sense of what's going on in a way that mono wasn't. Oh yeah. And then hang on, right. This is something that we know how to deal with. We know what it is. And yes, it's a drastic change, but you mentioned there uh, a few minutes ago that you then have had to completely rethink what you put into your body. And that's, that can't be easy when you're competing at at an elite level of sport. It's affected my game too, dramatically. It it was a relief then that, 
it wasn't like cancer or it wasn't mm. something very terminal. It's a, it's a chronic disease and I'll have it forever, but it's a relief in that it's not something that I can't get out of bed every day about, or I can't, I can't not eat anything. I don't have to eat through a bag. I, I can go on with my daily life, but there are things that can end up ending it early if something went wrong with the insulin or mm. I just, or something happened. So there's a chance there's a, that something could bad could happen, but there's also a chance that I can just live life the way I used to live. Um, just be careful. Um, but going back to how it can affect my game sometimes is that I have to prepare for a tournament and that I bring as much food as I can with me to keep me stable throughout the walking of like up to six hours up and down hills, carrying or pulling clubs. Um, and before that, even before starting the tournament, I have to make sure I'm injecting myself with an amount of insulin that's not going to make me go low when I start, which is hard to do because um, the tournaments are usually two days. And the first day you start, you inject yourself with a certain amount of insulin and you might be good. And then your um, metabolism is working into the next day after the long tournament because you've been working that whole day mm. the chasm works overnight into the next day and that can affect your blood sugar so you might think you were good for yesterday starting the day and then you inject that same amount and then you go to start the tournament and you're going low and that happened in one of my tournaments this past year where i started off the round so low that i was on the first green and i couldn't see and I was trying to putt and it was just like, I, I just couldn't see really the hole at all. So I was just randomly like, okay, putting and just taking an educated guess as to where it really was, how far to go. And then I had to stuff my face with food until I started feeling good. And the first two holes were, I think, double, double. And then I had to make my way back from there. And thankfully I ended up winning, but it was, um, it was really hard to come back from because I yeah. was about to faint for sure. Pretty remarkable on a couple of levels. Um, look, you get that diagnosis. Like you say, there are elements of like, okay, type 1 diabetes. You can, to an extent, if you manage it, live what would seem like a fairly normal life. But you don't know that at first. It must be it must be bewildering. Did, mm. did you know what to ask? And you said no one in your family had it. So I guess it's not like you can turn to your parents or your uncle or aunt or whatever and go, hey, what, what do I do? Yeah, yeah, no, they were just as scared and confused as I was. Because when I first got diagnosed, I thought, because I'm very black and white thinking, I it's there's no gray. So, like, I thought, well, I have type 1 diabetes, I can't have sugar, I can't have carbs, I'm done. So, for like two or three weeks, I had like steak and vegetables or chicken and vegetables. I didn't eat anything, any carbs. And I went to my next doctor's visit, and they were like, your numbers are incredible. Like, what have you been eating? And I was like, uh, just vegetables and chicken. And they're like, no, you need carbs because if, in fact, if you go low, then you don't have anything in your system to bring you up or keep you stable. So you need to have some carbs with every meal to keep your sugar okay and not drop low. Because then if you're just used to being low all the time, that's dangerous because if you go into a coma from being low, that causes brain damage. So you need to have carbs. So I was like, oh, well, thought I was doing good. So now the carbs have been 
and back to the diet. And then I still have confusion. I'm still looking for more education. I'm seeing a couple nutritionists. Now I'm seeing more nutritionists and a diabetes clinic around the corner for me. I'm calling them soon to see for some support or anything because my doctors are up in Syracuse and I'm down mm. here and it's just hard because I'm not going to travel seven hours every couple months to go to a doctor's visit when I could go like five to 10 minutes around the corner. So how old were you when you got into golf? I was five. Yeah. Yeah. My dad, he couldn't take not going to the driving range anymore. He stopped when I was born he, and then I was five. He's like, that's it. You're coming with me. <laughs> and then, he saw me swing and he said I had a very natural swing. And then so did the instructor that did lessons there. And he said, said you should go to this camp. And we went and then we practiced ever since. So. And is it something that, so, this might sound really silly because obviously you've you've carried it through to an, to an elite level, but did you always love it from the start? I mean, was it something that it was kind of time with your father or was it, was it really that you loved golf? I mean, I loved it, but at the same time, I had a very huge love for soccer and basketball, mm -hmm. more on soccer. And choosing between soccer and golf going onward to college was really difficult because um, I did do really well with soccer and as I did with golf. But um, I knew that with golf, there was more opportunities for me and there was more chance for me to improve and do great Whereas soccer, I could probably play for the next maybe 10 years at most. And then your body starts to like, yeah, I'm pretty sore and tired. And golf, you could play till you're 90 and do really well, even at 90. I know an 89-year-old who's practicing and has a really great swing over at the driving range we go to. So if he can do it, then I as well keep trying to do better every day. But when you got that diagnosis, was there a moment where you thought, I'm not going to be able to manage this. I'm not going to be able to be oh. out on a course for hours with the concentration needed and the stamina needed and worrying about my blood sugar levels. I mean, the thought was there, but I still had to go ahead and do it. Like I, there was no thought of me just quitting. Like I can't, I don't quit things. Um, so I just, I mean, I have those thoughts. Sometimes it's really hard and you break down because Life is hard in general, and then having this on top of it, and like you think you can't do anything, but you just still got to keep working, try to prepare better next time whenever something happens. But you don't just quit. Couldn't do that. How did your your parents react then? Because you you obviously there. I assume that not wanting to quit is probably in, in you know in some part due to them and their upbringing. But at the same time, they must look at it very differently and go, "You're our daughter." Um, how old were you in 2016? I actually got it in 2017. So right, okay. Um, so like three years ago. So I was like, I was 18. I was I was turning 19, but I was 18 okay. at the time. So you're, you're their you're their daughter. You're relatively young. They're going to be worried about your future. They probably don't want you to put yourself in a situation where you could, you know, unduly be um, at, at great risk, greater risk. Hmm. Were there any tense conversations between you and them in terms of? I want to continue, I want to push, and them going, we obviously want you to carry on playing golf, but we don't want you to hurt yourself. Yeah, at first, my dad was like, you don't have to continue going to school, you don't have to golf, just come home, like, get rest. And I knew that, like, if I just came home, like, I just 
it would be like, I don't know, not quitting. It'd just be sad because I'd be discontinuing school. I'd be setting myself backwards. And then just starting from that one domino could lead to next and next and depression and all sorts of things. So I thought that if I just push myself and just get through it and educate myself at the same time, that I will be okay. It will be a lot because it was a lot. But um, and they agreed. They didn't want me to have any setbacks. They they were worried for me. My dad is very worried about me. Even now, forever on, they will be worried about me. But they agreed that I shouldn't just leave. I had to stick it out. And if it does become too much, that there's no hesitation. You could always come home, always just take a break. But they didn't. They agreed that I didn't have to just stop everything. It's just kind of might be chicken and egg but do you think it's sport that gives you the motivation to carry on or do you think it's that sport is the byproduct of motivation to want to carry on and lead a normal life um i think it's a byproduct because there's other factors in it that make me want to keep going like i have a really strong support system at home and with my friends and relationship it's it's huge. And I have everyone that's positive in my life. So they push me even when I'm feeling down, I'm feeling like I'm going to explode because uh, I have a bad day with my sugars. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it today. And they're just like, it's okay. Like everyone's going to have bad days, even with type one, with everything, like tomorrow's a new day. We're just going to keep pushing forward. I'm not going to let you give up on you. So that is what pushes me as well. So it's not just the sport that pushes me to do better. It's everyone around me. So Now look, there are, there are obviously some chronic conditions where people find themselves competing in para games or something along those lines. You are competing against otherwise healthy people without any other condition. Mm-hmm. And your condition is not immediately apparent to look at you. No one's going to know that you have a chronic condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people see that there's nothing immediately unusual about you, do they find it difficult to accept that there is something wrong? I mean, when you're on the course and you can't see, and you know you're you you're know. having, you yeah, they have wrong. no idea. Um, how, how how is that dynamic? I mean, do you do you find that people have been supportive, or do you reckon in the heat of competition, actually, it's it's out the window and it's you look you're dealing with that thing and that's your thing to deal with? And so a lot of times, like before we start. A tournament, if it's people I don't know, I'll go up and on the first day, I'm like, everyone, um, I have type one and I have a pump and I have alarms that will go off out of nowhere. And it's not my phone and it's just my pump or my machine telling me that I need sugar or I need to inject myself. So if you hear that, I apologize from the distraction and because it could happen in the middle of your swing. Mm -hmm. Um, so they know that it's not just someone's phone going off and then they're like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to kill them. Um, they messed up my swing. It's actually like my life on the line. And usually they get that. But sometimes I've gotten some looks like oh, like rolling the eyes or something. I'm like, and that's very, that's like 0.1% of the time. Mostly mm. everyone's just very accepting and they want to make sure that everything is okay. But the people that are not are the ones that when the alarm goes off, they're just like, they get very annoyed and frustrated. You mentioned before that you're kind of doing everything you can to understand this condition. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is 
to understand that chronic condition. You know, you've got doctors you can go to, you can ask questions. Um, but for your own sense of, I suppose, mental well-being and, and, and being able to carry on, how important is it to you that you really understand what's going on with you? I think it's super important because, like, mental health-wise, like, in the beginning, they said it can cause different things to happen. It could cause depression. It could cause all sorts of things. And if I didn't know that and I did start getting upset and sad every day and withdrawn from life, I wouldn't know if it's anything else, just me. And it's actually the diabetes causing it or um, other things in my life like um, – just physical health wise, getting older, if I have bad blood sugars, I could lose limbs. And I wouldn't know that because I wouldn't ask the right questions. Same with um, overeating, undereating. When I get sick, they told me that my blood sugars will tend to go really high. So I have to be careful of that if I just get a common cold. And I wouldn't know that and I would get frustrated all the time if I didn't ask those questions or if they didn't tell me. So for me to do my own research on other things revolved around this disease is very helpful and supportive for my own mental state. Now, you mentioned that typically speaking, people developing type 1 diabetes, they might develop it when they're, what, 12 years old? Yeah, mostly like boys get it when they're like 12 to 14, 12 to 15, mm -hmm. I think. Girls, I, I think, tend to get it when they're little. Yeah. Um, but now it's been seen all over the world. People are getting it more and more later, which is very strange. With everything that you now know, if you have the opportunity, you know, which I assume you do from time to time, to go and talk to younger children who are getting this diagnosis, what do you try and say to them to give them inspiration, motivation that they can go on and achieve the things that they want to achieve? Uh, I would say that it's going to be frustrating and it's going to be a rough ride, but you can't eliminate things from your life that make you happy. Like just because you have this disease doesn't mean you have to stop eating cookies. Like you can have cookies. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> You're going to have what type of cookie? All right. What type of cookies? Chocolate chip, like peanut butter. Standard. Snickerdoodle cookies. <laughs> Snickerdoodles right out of the oven. Oh, my goodness. I, right. Okay, so that's obviously an American thing. As, as a Brit, I have no idea what a Snickerdoodle cookie is. What? Yeah, no, we don't have those. It's basically oh. like a vanilla cookie with, like, cinnamon and brown sugar all over it. Oh, they sound good. Yeah, okay. And it's, like, more puff cookie than, like, a regular <laughs> chewy cookie, if that makes sense. I know too much about cookies. I can still have cookies. <laughs> But that's what I would say to kids because they don't have to eliminate. They just have to watch what they eat. And you can have everything you want in moderation. And now sometimes yeah. you just go off the rails and you can have whatever, but make sure that you're looking at what your sugars are and maintaining them and inject enough and just know that you're going to have people in your life that support you and want to push you to be the best you can be. And you don't want to give up on yourself because they're not going to give up on you. And that's... That's okay. So I this is tied to that, but what do you think the most valuable lesson that you personally have learned is during the time that you've been type one diabetic? Um, I've learned that definitely hard days are always around and that my life, even though with diabetes, 
there's a lot of people that have worse conditions and that this isn't the end. Like I can't just give up because of this one condition that I have to live my life with the condition. It doesn't define my life. It's just a part of me. And even, even the day I got diagnosed when I was in the hospital, I was upset and I was crying and everything. And I looked up the TV and it was a commercial for St. Jude's Children's Cancer Center. And I was like, I'm crying because I can't have cake or I thought I can't have cake. Um, and I have to have insulin and there are kids who have cancer and I'm like, there's always something more that's going on. And this isn't, this is just a giant obstacle that will always be in the way, but it won't kill me. It won't end me. And I just got to keep driving on basically. Look, last thing I want to ask you, and um, you kind of alluded to the fact that the, the, King Wild Spirit Award was was huge for you, but what what do you feel your greatest achievement is to date? In golf, in general. In golf, in general, whatever you choose. I think my greatest achievement so far was that Kim Wild Spirit Award, actually. Yeah. Because it just it's not just an award given based off a statistic. It's something that goes along with like my personality who I am on and off the course and along with that statistics and the, and diabetes in that, because I have a condition that I'm stronger than, and I push past to be the best player and person I can be on the course playing and with my teammates. Like, I think that just Kim Moore award really describes everything that strive to be so i think that's the biggest achievement my person my um i don't know what the word is in my opinion there it is <laughs> <laughs> look uh danielle it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you i really appreciate you giving up some time fingers crossed you'll be able to get back on a course reasonably soon um hopefully soon yeah hopefully maybe a competition <laughs> good luck for that when it comes around and thank you for your time thank you for the time a couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. First of all, Marla, is there any truth in this idea that um, autoimmune diseases run in families? Because we heard it anecdotally from Lavisa. And it's quite an interesting one because it would seem to be that autoimmune diseases might run in families, but everyone gets a completely different autoimmune disease, which kind of sounds like it's just coincidence. <laughs> Look, I mean, there 
There are studies going on in so many parts of the world right now to understand autoimmune diseases much better. I think it is just something, unfortunately, that we just do not have enough evidence in right now. And I think there are so many questions that we just need to understand from the start. I mean, I wish I could tell you a clear definitive answer, yes or no, but unfortunately there isn't a clear answer. But it's really interesting to hear her opinions on it and her thoughts about it. Yeah, so there's a lot of research going into it, but there's no there's no real clear medical evidence, right? Again, it like I'm not an expert here on this, but I know that depending on which autoimmune disease we're talking about, there are different levels of of correlation and causation and different levels of investigation that's been done. And I urge anyone to to take a look at PubMed directly and not and not take it from me who who has probably skimmed the literature on this. You know more than most people. <laughs> Yeah, do you know what the thing is, though, is that, and and I think something that we've been discussing a whole way through all of these podcast episodes is that people look for answers. And I think that is what we take from this, right? It's not so much um, like what the question specifically is here. And in this case, it's, does it run in my family? Are we at risk? La, la, la. But it's the answers that people are looking for. Why me? Why me is such a big question that has just threaded through all of these. And something that, you know, Natalie has talked about as well in previous episodes, we've been commenting, and it's there, it's how people respond to it and what the type of energy that they give off when they're, when they're dealt with these cards in life that, how to how do you adapt and move on? I think that is something that I really got from this podcast episode because she just has such a strong support system, a strong environment around her that it gives her the I, I want to say like ecosystem, but it's the ecosystem to be able to thrive, move forward, and and overcome these challenging questions. I don't know what you guys think though. I think she has a very positive mindset. Um, you know, she she says it quite a a few times during the interview about don't give up on yourself and I think um you know when she was watching the tv when she found out that she couldn't <laughs> she said eat cake anymore uh which made me giggle because I'd be gutted if I couldn't eat cake anymore um but you know she she was looking up and she saw that uh, there was an advert for you know children who had cancer and she just sort of put that into perspective and was like do you know why it really could be a lot worse and I'm going to use that um, and be grateful for what I have. And, you know, it's what I have isn't isn't really that bad. I mean, what she has is bad. I, I know someone with um, diabetes uh, type one from university and he was constantly injecting himself and it did. It affected his everyday life. Um, and, you know, I was there with him for three, three years watching this process that he went through. Um, and I just think her attitude and her mentality to... She almost compares her situation to people that are in a worse situation. I think that's, I don't know, I think there's something in that to do that when you're pretty, you know, you're facing quite a challenging time as it is. And then to use that as yeah. your motivation is, is is pretty special, I think. And I also love the line that she comes up with, with, you know, just because you have this disease doesn't mean you can't have that cookie. Like, it doesn't mean all the fun stops. It, there is completely, you know, stuff that, that you can look forward to. And, and a large part of that, whilst it's quite a funny line, is about understanding what's going on with you and asking the right questions and and getting as knowledgeable as you can about your condition, which is a really difficult thing sometimes because everyone reacts differently. 
And people want to know different levels as well, don't they? And I think that's one of the hardest things we learn at medical school is understanding what the patients want to know and what questions are important to them as well. So I think something something that stood out for me, right, is that she, like when she's on the, uh, like golfing and the, the alarm goes off and all of these things that she discusses, or I'm sure we'll touch upon later on, She's quite confident in her ability to know that it doesn't, it almost doesn't fade her if someone gives her the eye or someone gives her that look or someone, you know, that kind of thing. She's confident in her ability. But I think that it takes a certain strength to do that because I think that sometimes we want to be telling everyone and shouting to the world, understand what I'm going through you know, understand what this is that is affecting my life and don't judge me and don't judge what I like, what you think you know about me. Um, And the same goes for consultations with doctors, right? Like being able to know what you want to know, being able to explain that, being able to talk in a way. I just, I think that there's so much about communication in chronic conditions that we we definitely need to touch on as well at some point. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I I suppose there's that thing as well around, you know, she is really confident, but not letting, not letting the eye rolls affect her. And also, um, kind of, it reminds me of, um, of what Michael was talking about when, you know, he, he ran, um, he, he won his first goal, didn't he? At the, at the Paralympic games and, and he looked back on YouTube and people are gone, well, he doesn't look that, he doesn't look unwell to me and kind of saying that he was faking it and having to have that mental resilience that it's like, you know what? No, this is what's going on with me, and and um, it, it's down to you to deal with your own prejudice, and that won't negatively impact me. It's all part well of said. mentality, isn't it? Like I, I loved it when she said, um, you know, her blood sugar levels were so low she couldn't see anything, and she took an educated guess when she was putting. I thought brilliant, and you know, she kept going and she won it anyway. You know, she said it so flippantly. Um, but I love that attitude. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm at the point where I can't see. I'm at the point where I'm about to faint at my own feet, but yet I'm going to win this thing. And it, yeah, it all plays mm-hmm. into that mentality. It plays into that positive attitude, that positive um, thinking of, you know, don't give up on yourself. And I think she displays that throughout her entire interview. Um, that not at one point does she feel sort of sorry for herself or... Um, you know, she accepts it. She's very accepting of it and just uses the fact that there's other people out there worse off as her motivation. I think that, yeah. And, and her parents even give her the opportunity to take a step back. And she's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go and get educated. I'm going to go and, you know, which must be really hard. You know, she, what, she was 16, 17 when she got diagnosed. So that's a pretty pivotal moment in, most young people's lives to get, to get this thing and still to have that kind of mindset of no I'm not going to let this stop me I can imagine a lot of people at that point going oh Christ yeah yeah and and guess what David what are the support services there to support them in our underfunded mental health support system in the UK you know referrals at the all-time high and yeah it's not coming hand in hand. We have a we have a mental health crisis. We have uh, an inability to be able to care for carers in the country. We don't have a good system to be able to support disabled people. And so you put all of this in, in the cards are on the table, right? You get diagnosed with 
with it with a hidden disability or with with a condition that's really going to affect your life and you're not given that hand in hand support from society which for someone like her to turn around and still be achieving so much i mean hats off because the cards are not stacked in your favor and i think it's such a positive message to send out to people I I think there's one thing um, she said at the end of the interview, which I think is very prominent, and I'm just going to bring it up here because it's the same for everybody. Like, um, you know, who, who wants to achieve something, who's got a goal in mind, um, and there's a, there's a very good quote actually behind this. But she says about you've got to learn that there's always going to be hard days around the corner. And even with diabetes, there's a lot of people with worse conditions um, and you can't just give up because you have that condition. It doesn't define you. It's just a part of you. But it's that small little sentence she says at the beginning about, um, you know, learning that there are hard days that are always around. It's do you know what? It's the hard days that count the most. So when I can't be bothered to train or I'm having a crap day or I've had some awful news about something, and the last thing I want to do is get my ass in the gym. I do it anyway, because I'm not going to lose out on that day just because I'm having a bad one, you know? And that's the message that she portrays. And this is the difference between athletes and people who actually make it somewhere. It's the bad days that they still give it 110%. You know, everyone will have their good days. and But the thing is, let's be real, life sucks especially this year you know and there's probably more bad days around the corner than there are good ones and if you were only to train on your good days you're never going to get to your goal ever it's not going to happen because not everyone is going to have a good day every day you're going to have more shit days than um than good days so i think it's really important for anybody listening in that it's the bad days that count yeah yeah absolutely look thank you uh Marla and Natalie for joining me for this one. Um, amazing to hear someone so strong-willed at the age that she is. And also, I'll put a, a, a link in the show notes. She's got a really good voice. She's got her own SoundCloud page. <laughs> Take a listen. <laughs> yeah. Go have a listen. Go be a fan. Um, it's uh, I know that singing is her other passion. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Go have a look at that on, on, on the show notes. But uh, otherwise, we'll be back next week uh, where we're talking to Paralympian Jason Smith. I don't-